0: Welcome, ironradio.org listeners. I'm Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about 15 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder.
2: Hi, I'm Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I teach for Globe University, do some stuff with Eat to Perform, Mindset Performance Institute, and I'm uh, looking out my window at snow. Wow.
0: Yeah, no snow here in Ohio yet. Uh, we have Adam Glass with us. Adam, not to put you on the spot, but maybe a sentence or two about yourself just quickly.
3: Hey guys, Adam Glass here from Fort Worth, Texas. Very, very happy to be on the show today.
2: And no snow in Texas. <laughs> it's like seventy today. It's crazy. It's
0: <laughs> awesome. Okay, um, we have some listener uh, questions, uh, listener mail, and a little bit of news, like we always do. And then we're going to get to um, Adam's origin story. I think we're going to talk we about talk about grip training. We do all kinds of fun stuff today. Uh, after the break. Uh, But let's start with the listener question, and again, you guys uh, chime in if you want. It says, hello, how are you guys, you and the rest of the guys? I love your show and respect your knowledge. Uh, I was hoping you could help me with a question. Uh, Textbooks say that during a fast, uh, after the liver uses up-stored glycogen, the brain is primarily looking for glucose. So the body does this by breaking down protein. Since there is no protein or glucose coming in, will it break down muscle protein and convert it to glycogen. Even once someone hits ketosis, the brain still needs a small amount of glucose. So my question is this: Will eating small amounts of carbs during a fast, let's say some fruit or honey, give the body a little bit of glucose that it needs? Uh, therefore, avoiding it having to break down muscle. Wouldn't this be the fastest way to strip fat? Thanks in advance. You can put this on the podcast if you want, Frank. All right, uh, Dr. Nelson, you're probably best read on the fasting, and intermittent fasting. Um, What would you have to say for Frank?
2: Yeah, so a couple things. So in general, he's pretty correct, um, which is very good. So it's not like he's done his homework, which is awesome. So he's correct that the liver, like in general, be given up first. So let's say you ate at 8 p.m. last night, and you're kind of going through your day today without anything to eat. (laughs) Liver glycogen will be used up first. Um, Even if you were to exercise later in the day, assuming you're not super active during the day, muscle glycogen is relatively untapped. um, So that's usually more reserved for exercise overall. Um, I guess the bigger question I would have is that he is correct that if he had a smaller amount of carbohydrates, um, that kind of changes the processes a little bit Um, Some protein will be used, although during a short-term fast, it's really not that much. Uh, Your body can pull some amino acids out of the the circulating pool. Um, In healthy people especially, you will break down more fat. Um, It's a little hard to get into ketosis from just a short fast, but he's correct that if you were to do longer-term fasting, we know from more like the starvation studies, uh, you can get into ketosis. So the other fuel source primarily being used is actually fat. So how I use it with clients is that in general, if they're healthy and it's something that they want to try, I'll have them work up to like one longer fast per week if their goal is more body composition related. Um, Reason for that is pretty much what he mentioned. As you fast, your levels of insulin will become lower and lower, which will push your body to use more fat Mm -hmm. as a fuel. Obviously, you don't have anything else coming in, so it's an easy way to chop out a whole bunch of calories. Uh, there is some eh, debatable literature about uh, autophagy and other processes that may, you know, help uh, health things and kind of recycle sort of misfolded proteins, things of that nature. Um, and then the last thing is, I found that it's just pretty easy for most people to do. As long as it's just like the name, it's intermittent. It's not something I would recommend most people do every day to start. And I'm a bigger fan of working up to a 19 or even 24 hour fast about once a week. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I don't. I guess the question I would have for him then would be, what is the reason for fasting? So if his reason for fasting is more body composition, but he doesn't want to lose a lot of uh, muscle proteins. I would work up to once a week, probably on the shorter end, and I probably would not consume anything at that point. Um, He is correct that if you were to do longer fasts, that any type of ingested protein or carbohydrates uh, will help reduce uh, breakdown of muscle.
0: So you would suggest if he did more than a day, he might go for that piece of fruit or a couple tablespoons of honey?
2: yeah I would rather have people go with some type of protein to be honest mm-hmm. um, I think that's going to be a little bit more bang for their buck because you're purposely trying to drive down insulin um and even then what I found with that is that it it's hard for people to keep that under control once their fast is done whether people are a lot of a you know all or nothing type mentality it's Usually, I tell them as soon as you eat, just have your normal meal. And I got the term Brad Pilon just pretend your fast never happened. Um, having people, I've tried to have them do very low caloric days every once in a while, just enough playing around with stuff. And some people can do it fine. That's not a big issue. But for a lot of people, it was much harder for them to keep, you know, say five, 600 calories per day than it was just for them to not eat at all. Um, so I found it's in practice that seemed to work a little bit better.
0: Yeah, protein was also my approach, frankly. Uh, I actually wrote some articles on T-Nation about it uh, because I would do that. The the last time I competed, I just thought being in my mid-40s, I needed something a little bit more dramatic to get really lean. So, yeah, on Fridays, I would only sip small amounts of protein and leucine, you know. Uh, Oh, yeah. and uh, Including like during a workout and that sort of thing. And I actually showed some metabolic cart data. Uh, in some of those yep. articles about that, right? It will not, like if you eat 30, 20, 30 grams of protein, it will uh, acutely, you know, temporarily inhibit fat oxidation. It'll stop fat loss momentarily. But you're trying to get that muscle preservation at the same time. So at least my formulation with all that was, you know, literally just a half a scoop of protein, maybe with a little dab of leucine in it, uh, sip it during uh, my otherwise fasted cardio in the morning and that sort of stuff and uh, it really seemed to help. I mean, I think maybe 8 weeks deep into that diet I was getting very lean uh more so than I would have thought uh given my other dietary parameters. You know, and I I actually did a few calculations and if you just do I guess I'm very much in agreement with you then Mike because I mean on Fridays Uh, that's something like 16% less insulin produced throughout the week. And I mean, I, I did some under the curve calculations or even just, you figure one out of seven days kind of thing. But, um, yeah, you get away from that constant carbon insulin environment and your cells will almost reprogram, you know, as far as the proteins are expressing and, and how you metabolize fat and all that sort of stuff. So
2: yeah, there's some good data showing that it may help insulin sensitivity and other things that too so
0: i would say this um frank uh, your body is so greedy the enzyme activity lpl is an enzyme that grabs up fat and brings it into the uh, muscle and fat tissue that sort of thing you have so many enzymes that are so eager to restore the fat i'd be cautious uh the following day you know like if you do one day off and i was always careful not to go hog wild the following yeah. day and eat donuts and junk and stuff like that not that i really would at that point but um yeah you do have to be careful Uh, not to undo what you've done, so to speak. But uh, the other thing that comes to me from this is that oftentimes you'll hear physiologists say that fat burns in a carbohydrate flame, Uh, And what they mean is, if you've got some muscle glycogen there, uh, it will help feed the Krebs cycle, sort of that central oxidative wheel, and then that can draw in uh, acetyl CoA, you know, from that used to be parts of body fat. the The bottom line is, it sort of primes the system, so you can burn fat. But a lot of people misinterpret that, thinking they need to ingest carbohydrates.
2: Right. Uh,
0: And I don't, and that's not what we're talking about. So uh, the glycogen could be stored from before. Uh, and that sort of thing But uh, again, that's why Mike and I are talking about more temporary um, fast Where you still have I mean, you might start with only 70 to 90 grams of liver glycogen That's going to be gone overnight or within a day And then you might have three or 400 grams of uh, muscle glycogen on a normal diet And that's going to take a little bit longer to go away That's okay Once it's stored, it can help prime the Krebs cycle and keep things turning uh, but that's ex- really extended fats, re- very low ketogenic diets for long periods of time. I'm just not as much of a fan. I know some people say, no, ketosis, you know, you eventually you start preserving nitrogen and you don't fall apart. And, but I've even seen guys that used a fair amount of anabolics, frankly. Uh, they cut all their carbs too fast. They try really hard. They lean real hard on the super low carb, 50 grams a day or less ketogenic thing. And they chew up their muscle mass like crazy. So I, I have mixed thoughts about Long-term ketosis, maybe we should get some more people on the show um, about it, too, just to kind of debate things. But
2: Yeah, and usually with that, if someone goes into ketosis, usually the main sort of pathways they're trying to use for, say, bodybuilding, glycolytic-type stuff usually kind of go in the tank, too. So a lot of those people don't change their training to fit
3: that either, and that just ends up in a train wreck. Yeah.
0: Adam, any yeah. thoughts about carbs during yeah. a fast?
3: I'll tell you that last thing you guys said was really profound, Doc, because that, that idea of there's a small chunk of the population that you can put a plane in front of them. Okay, you're going to be on uh, a very, very regimented plan, and those people can jump in and go. There's a big chunk of the population that can't, and I don't think it's a technical detail problem on why they can't do it as much as it is. It's just too much at a time. So the thing that I love, the, there's a great wisdom that you guys are sharing, and it's the wisdom of start off, start off where you're at. Don't try to do what the pro bodybuilder is doing in his cutting cycle week one. That's not you.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, and I confess that that was the biggest issue I I did with fasting. As I read some stuff and said, oh, I'm going to do a 24 hour fast, and I eat every two to three hours at that point, and. It was another debacle, and it took me eight months before I even tried it again. Cause I'm like, well, this fasting stuff this is the stupidest thing ever, you know. And then I realized exactly what you said. I'm like, well, wait a minute. If I've never deadlifted before, unless I'm Andy Bolton, I'm not going to pull 400 on day one. Yeah. You yeah. know, so. Why don't I try a 10-hour fast once and see how that goes? And then maybe a 12-hour one. Oh, wow, that's a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. So
3: a lot of folks too, they they have they don't actually know what a 10-hour fast is. You, yeah. you know, like to to purposefully alter your choices for the day. Not that not that your kids woke you up earlier than you expect and you guys had to run out the house and then you had to skip lunch because your boss mm-hmm. was on your back. But that delivery process, man, most people don't. They have a challenge in that 10-hour mark. So I tell people, you know, uh, I love that right there, the sip and protein throughout the day. Dr. Lowry, I've had clients doing it, some kind of thing, and it has to be those short windows. Very smart.
0: I will, uh, I will say, yeah, behaviorally, uh, every time I try to get very lean, um, almost the first month of about a 20-week diet is just um, the training wheels phase, you know? I get any kind of junk and carbs out. Like you said, Mike, I've so trained myself to eat every two hours, like with that bodybuilder mentality that, um, you almost have to become somewhat comfortable with a small, a level of hunger. But I think you are alluding to this Adam, but in the evening it becomes almost impossible. In fact, in fact, I would actually eat a small amount of, uh, egg beaters because I was killing myself. I, I, at first I couldn't even do it, you know? So, uh, yeah, it's really a challenge to be able uh, to do that. And I think the whole idea with the sipping of the proteins, you're trying to sneak in some building blocks for muscle preservation without spiking your insulin and shutting down the whole lipolysis process. I mean, keeping insulin down is sort of the thing, you know, so.
2: Yeah. And you're also trying to get stage-ready lean, which is extremely lean. You know, you're not just trying to kind of lose five pounds. You know, you're like pushing the envelope there, too, so. Right on.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, Real quick with some news before we get to Adam. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Um, I got two bits of news here. Uh, one is from technologynetworks.com. Uh, this is new stuff. December of this year. Sensor detects toxins leaching from plastic. So hmm. people already weren't concerned about uh, bisphenol A, BPA. This is about yet other stuff. I mean, there are there's several analogs of these things. Um, but let me give you the the deal it says engineers from Massey university have developed a highly sensitive device able to detect synthetic compounds that leach from plastic food packaging into the contained food or beverage now one of the things always concerns me is of course especially if i'm nuking stuff where it's a fatty food i think it's even more susceptible uh you know like the natural peanut butter i like the kind in, in the glass jar you know and there's a reason for that but anyway these kind of compounds are major health concern worldwide as they have been linked to genetic, developmental and fertility defects in humans. Dr. Asif Zia, together with a professor colleague of his oh I'm going to butcher this last name yeah. Muko Padhe, um, both from the School of Engineering and Advanced Tech, developed an electrochemical sensing system that is able to rapidly quantify a synthetic compound like this DHEP. Um, diethylhexylphthalate, or hmm. D-E-H-P for short. It says uh, D-E-H-P is used to induce flexibility in plastic products. Uh, but because of its molecular structure, it doesn't really attach covalently to the plastic lattice, you know, of the container, and it could leach into the surrounding environment. Uh, long story short, previous tech required a sample to be sent to the lab, or they would separate you know, the plastic compound of concern and try to quantify it. And uh, they hope that the sensor can be integrated into uh, like a tap uh, in what's called a smart home uh, where you could fit this throughout your house and you could actually get real time information. You know, if you've got a certain amount of processing ability and, you know, your house is all um, integrated, so to speak. Uh, So you can get real time info on the plastics in what you're consuming and the foods that you're about to eat, and that's kind of amazing if they can get to that point. I would guess that's a few years off, but the sensor they developed is a huge step in the right direction. Oh, well, that's very interesting. It kind of goes back to that how you've been talking, Mike. Actually, um, a couple of our guests and, and co-hosts have about the quantified self. And you know, yeah. you put it best. I mean, you got a microprocessor on your hip. Almost everybody does now. Yeah, and, with
2: your phone. <laughs> you
0: know, or it, once you integrate your house like this. You know, I've seen refrigerators that will order food when they're when you're low on milk or whatever from Amazon Prime, you know, stuff like just crazy stuff like that. Um, but, yeah, this constant data uh, could be very interesting, too, because I think we've been running blind when it comes to the food industry and stuff like plastics and additives and, and all this sort of thing.
2: That so, may be interesting to see, like you said, how long stuff has been in your fridge. You know, maybe if it's been there for a few days, it doesn't have much time to leach. And then if it's been in there for. I don't know, a longer time. Maybe it's worse. Maybe you can just have a little gizmo. You just check it now every so absolutely. often. No, yeah.
0: absolutely. Or maybe it's a, a heat thing. You know, you can keep things on yep. low heat and it never happens. I don't know. So, cool stuff. This last yeah, one. Yeah, it is interesting. This last one is um, from labroots.com. I'd encourage anybody to check this out. It's just one of those news sources that they pull things together for you. Fish oil turns fat storage cells into fat burning cells. This is spanking new. This is Christmas Eve Eve of this year. Um, Best of us. Julianne uh, is it Chia, C H I A E T. It says uh, fish oil has long been known for you know many benefits of course uh, brain body fatness health during pregnancy. it talks about uh, a primer here in the beginning of this little article. There are three types of fat cells, and many of our listeners know that there's white cells, which is what we consider regular adipose cells, fat storage, beige, and brown fat. So that beige middle category, we don't give a ton of attention to, but it's sort of a midway, I think, in many ways, as the name implies, uh, between fat storage, white uh, adipose cells, and brown fat, which is... Uh, At first, it wasn't thought to be a big deal in adults, but that's arguable. So anyway, the more we can turn uh, white fat, beige or brown, probably the better for body uh, fatness. Um, So it says, while fat cells are responsible for obesity, let's see, they store excess energy. uh, When unused, can lead to unwanted body fat. Brown cells burn fat to generate heat and keep the body warm. Beige fat cells burn calories. Uh, the body converts white fat cells into beige fat cells during exercise when muscle uh, muscles release the hormone iricin. Uh I'm actually not really familiar with iricin. Uh But unfortunately, like brown cells, beige cells diminish in number as one grows older. Japanese scientists from Kyoto University found that mice fed fatty foods and fish oil gain significantly less weight and fat that... Um, mice-fed fatty foods alone. Specifically, and this is what caught my eye, specifically the fish oil group gained 5 to 10 percent less weight and 15 to 25 percent less fat, again by co-consuming the omega-3s with their regular fatty diet. Uh, The oil works by triggering receptors in the digestive tract. The receptors activate the sympathetic nervous system and convert fat storage white fat cells into fat-burning beige fat cells, thus protecting the body from obesity. So interesting stuff, maybe another reason to think about fish oil. I know there's different genetic um, responses to fish oil, but that's kind of amazing to me, you know, so I guess in theory, at least, you could um, consume some fish oils regularly and then the fatty foods you eat uh, would not be as likely to be stored. I hesitate to say this would translate acutely, you know, pop a couple of fish oils and the, you know, the donuts you're about to eat will not become body fat, but.
2: So, yeah, it's, um, I don't know if it's from the same group or the same study, but um, in scientific reports, same thing. Fish oil induces an uh, increase in UCP1 upregulation in brown fat and white fat via sympathetic nervous system. So obviously they're increasing one of the uncoupling proteins, and they said that that may also work via beta-3 adrenergic receptor. Again, oh, this is in mice.
0: Okay, yeah, it may be the same. Maybe this is... um. Sort of a watered-down explanation, yeah. 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 Listeners, uh, uncoupling protein. This is the kind of thing in your little mitochondrial furnaces instead of making ATP and energy from all the calories, the food you eat, um, it's wasted. it tends to waste that energy as heat, and that's something that you would want, you know, for weight control and that sort of thing. Okay, good stuff. Let's, let's turn to uh, Adam. So thanks for your patience, man.
2: Absolutely, guys. Yeah, right. and so we have a... The call today, Mr. Adam Glass, and if you want to just give us info on your background and what you do and how you ended up in moving from
3: Minnesota to Texas. <laughs> Man, I'll, uh, I'll jump in a couple of those. Uh, you know, guys, I, I'm so honored to be on today. I really appreciate it. I love being able to get out and do these shows. Uh, I'm 32 years old. I live in Fort Worth, Texas right now. I'm not from Texas. I've lived here for about a year and a half. Um. I actually was born in California, and I grew up in Michigan. Um, our family we we arrived in Dearborn, Michigan, in like 1987 or 88, and um, I got to move around and go to school in in a couple of different cities right there in in Southwest uh, Southeast Michigan. Um, and I knew when I was in high school that that I needed to get out of Michigan. The, the most important thing I would say about my childhood when I think about it this way was it was it was seeing the decline of the auto industry, like living that experience. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like that really shaped what I thought I needed to do, because I could remember in, in elementary school and a little bit in middle school, you'd have you'd have people come in and you'd listen to, you know, my friend's dad works at this plant. My friend's dad works at that plant. And of course, we're all going to have jobs there. When we get older and by the time I hit high school, and of course, anyone who's from Michigan um, can tell you this, you know, a lot of those plants had been closed down approaching the year 2000. Mm-hmm. So I was looking at what can I do? You know what? I, I don't have the grades behind me right now to get into a college uh, right now. I don't have the money to do anything. So I did what a lot of people do who uh, want to get out of where they're at. They don't have money, man. I joined the military and, um, that to me was something that I knew I was going to do for a long time. And uh, I absolutely loved my military career. So I went in at, at age 18. I turned 19 uh, in basic training. I went to, I was down in Texas for a year and a half, went up to North Dakota doing nuclear security and different duties there. I went to South Korea. And it was in Korea that I really started to get more serious with my training. So when I got to South Korea, I was put into an electronic security system in, um, installment team. So we'd go around the flight line and put up thermal imagers, which, you know, had to intrusion. It's all about anti-intrusion, guys. That's the, the end of it. Mm-hmm. But, but it was cool because I only had to work six to eight hours a day, which was a little bit shorter than a normal shift. And then I would go and work with the base's EST team. So that was all your emergency response. You know, if some crazy bastard barricaded himself in a building, we would go in and and get him out of there. And that training for me was 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 really my first time that I got to work with some people who were 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 truly in the kind of shape that I thought I was going to reach in the service. I mean, does that make sense? You know, oh, yeah. these were guys that were very very skilled at what they're doing, and they were very very good at helping. Uh, others get up to mission-ready status. So for me, Korea was, was a turnaround in my life, and I re- I got really dedicated with my training, went to Okinawa from there, and uh, because of what I had already done in my career, they had put me right into law enforcement, and then I started jumping in that deployment window. And the deployments for me were a key time of my life. Because when you go to Iraq, it's it's like every day is, is crazy, but every day is the same. And there's a boringness that comes in of a deployment that really tests you. And everybody does different things. Well, my thing that I did during my deployment was I trained. Uh, I, I wanted to do something productive of my time. I didn't want to, you know, burn up my paycheck, buying shit that I didn't need. I didn't want to... Uh, I, do, I don't I want to just sit around and, and complain how I missed home or something. So I would get out trained train every day. And when I came out of my first deployment, I had, man, I had really, really, really changed what I could do physically. So I got, I got there the first time, um, showing up in theater, probably like 200 pounds. I left theater weighing probably 220. I kept most of that weight going into my next deployment. And that's when I started to get serious into my grip training. So this was probably 2006. And, and, you know, that's what a lot of people probably don't. Grip training was, was the most interesting thing to me just because i could work on it all the time i didn't have the time to be able to necessarily get in pile on the weights all the time. i didn't always have the equipment to do that uh, i didn't train with somebody so it wasn't as convenient to have a, a spotter available so the the challenge of these ridiculous things can you bend this steel bar can you tear this deck of cards enough that became very interesting to me and when i came back from my my second deployment i was already at a point where i could um I could bend some pretty decent steel bars. Uh, I was pulling 500 pounds off the floor of ease. You know, I could I could do things for for a normal like a normal sized guy, who like Trano's getting pretty strong. And during my second deployment, I had a skull injury. We had had a riot the prison that I was at, and that had had really shaped kind of what the future would look like. So it was in June of 2007 that we were busting up a riot and uh i got the back of my head struck with a steel pole oh. we'll talk about that more in a bit and i didn't really realize how severe that was going to be for the first year and a half but when i came back from okinawa they sent me to mine out north dakota and in the dakotas it was it was great for me in for on the on the career side because had, they had a lot of need for, for skilled trainers to come into that sort of thing. And that, that opened up many doors. But I started to have a health problem develop. So it was 2008 is when it first began. And I was starting to get cluster migraines. And it would, mm. it would start in the back part of my the right side of my head, very close to where I was struck, into my right eyeball, into my right ear, into my right jaw. And it would be just incredible pain. And most of the time, there was a pressure that was always there. I mean, just like like always being in a headlock, that kind of deal. Now, towards the end of 2009, it was starting to escalate. It was getting worse. And there were other things going on at the time. I was losing mobility uh, because my training was focused on deadlift, 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 deadlift. That's feeling. Like all these guys that are always talking about how great the deadlift is, the consequence of that is you move like shit. I don't know anybody who's always talking deadlift who moves well right now. And I can say that I was that guy for a while, man. So I came out of the military thinking, something's wrong, but I'm going to be able to work around it. And then I moved to Minneapolis. I uh, started working with Mike T quite a bit. And probably my first two years in, it was, uh, man, it was, it was always a crushing level of pressure always a crushing level of um, just atmospheric problems. Nose always plugged up sinus cavity, tremendous amounts of pain. It would cause problems of drive and work and that sort of thing. And that that became my absolute obsession was trying to get this thing fixed. Is the, the training the training really shifted for me that year and I, I tell you guys all of that because that sets up why I know how to do what I do. Um, if I would not have had some kind of injury, most of the people that I've sought out over the last eight years and became really good friends with, I, I wouldn't have had the same need to. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that, I think that that's an important thing for me to share as we get going, because, uh, I had a need to start finding people who were experts of human anatomy. I had a need to find people who were experts of, of all these different things. But I didn't have, a You know, necessarily the money to be going out jumping hospital to hospital so it became like a work program if that makes any sense of you know hey this guy said go read this book figure this part out so I started working a lot um, and I found myself having excellent people to work with Frankie Fares, Mike Nelson uh, Brad Nelson years ago working with him Um, you know those guys all brought in a tremendous amount of knowledge to me that gave me directions to go so that became the biggest game of either, either can you fix your neck or can you get some kind of progress in for training? In 2013, I went to Jamaica for a week and during that week, zero, zero problems, zero migraines, zero headaches. And that's what set me up to moving. So when we, when we get into stuff, and I know you guys probably got a couple of questions about the training side, but what I'd say is this is the process that gets us there. Everything matters. You know what I mean? Like when I sit here and I think about how do we get to this point here? A lot of it is going out, finding people, chatting with them, finding new people. Hey, what do you guys think I should work on? And then getting to work with it.
0: No, it sounds good. I mean, everybody, before we hit the record button, we were talking about uh, some of the resources just here in the Ohio area that I don't really get to branch out and just have conversations. You know, so much uh, knowledge can come out of conversations and uh, it's easy to get stuck in your, your fitness hole or your work, you know, and actually not get proactive and start to address some of your issues. So I, I appreciate what you're saying, Adam, about need drives us. You know, I had a physician once who said, well, when the symptoms get bad enough, you'll be back. You know,
3: yes. <laughs> yeah. <And> I,
0: I, <laughs> it's, it's that it's kind real. of thing, you know,
2: it's true. Yeah. Uh,
3: yeah. So I'll say this, uh, grip training in me, man, I've, I've, it was probably in 2008 that I decided that I want to build a pair of the strongest hands that have ever existed. You know what I mean? And, and the thing is, is, is when you get goal like that, well, that's ridiculous. Where are you going to get a standard? So I just started looking. Who's got the strongest hands? You got guys like John Brookfield out there. And if, if if you guys haven't heard of John Brookfield, look him up. What a fascinating individual. Um, guys like Richard Soren, who owns the Sorenx company. What a phenomenal dude and uh Dennis Rogers so I started reaching out to these guys and I would see the things they were doing like I remember the first time I saw Dennis Rogers bend a wrench over yeah, his yeah. leg into a u and I thought that's not real that's fake no yeah. one can do that you know and then you come back later and it's like well then, then you prove it's fake go try to do it and do it and then I started contacting him and he responded which was amazing to me and I got going to that whole direction um and I'll say this, grip training for me has been so absolutely fun because when your hands get strong, you can do things that are, man, just, just okay, so one day Mike, Mike T is at the gym, him and his wife Jody, we were all hanging out, and I got it in my head one day that I wanted to try out this one-arm barbell deadlift that I hadn't played with in a couple of years. So I go in the back of the room, first rep, try to pick up the barbell, and this isn't even hook grip, 315, pick it up. I think, oh, that's pretty cool. What if we try a hook grip, 405? I go around the corner. Mike, come here. Take a look at this. I can deadlift 400 (laughs) pounds with one hand. Within three days, I pulled 500. Within three weeks, I pulled 580. And within two more months of that, I was over 600. Wow. That's what grip training does. Mike's seen this. Um, I can do pinch grip pull-ups now. I can do actually the thing that I got this week that I'm excited, guys, is I got my first rep on my back lever from a pinch grip, which I don't know anybody in the world that can do that. Yeah, I got the photo up as my cover on Facebook if you take a look at it.
2: (laughs) For most people to do a back lever is very hard. I mean, for the average non-gymnastic person walking around, much less do it from a pinch grip, which is crazy.
3: And and I'll tell you that the whole reason that I got so interested in it was I didn't think it was possible. I didn't think that the thumb had the mechanical leverage right. to actually hold the weight of my body. I didn't think it was possible. I figured chasing it would give me another 10 pounds somewhere else. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't actually think it'd be like, holy crap, like, this is starting to work now. You know what? Uh, we're
0: starting to drift into the topic. This is going to get very interesting. I'm starting to think all these questions. Before I start <laughs> start asking them, let's go to break, everybody, just real quick. When we come back, uh, we're going to start um, – tapping Adam's brain a little bit here uh, about some of this too, because I was just thinking about anatomical questions and all this stuff, but it's amazing stuff. And uh, let's get to it in just a minute. Hey, listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you Uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle. Oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, There is a book available. You can simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being, quote, unquote, educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So, again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book. But that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. And on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, You can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, It's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact uh, follow us in other media and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks.
3: I can't stop feeling. Some of us don't understand how lucky we are to be living
1: in this life. Hi, listeners. This is Rob Fortress-Fortney. I'm here to remind you that as the holiday season approaches and your thoughts turn to giving, we like you to keep Iron Radio in your thoughts. Every week, it's been our privilege to bring you weekly news, experts, and gym talk. Did you know that now roughly 20,000 Brothers and Sisters of Iron count on us for these things? Of course, not everyone can afford to be a supporting member or a significant one-time donor. But for those of you willing to pitch in, $4 per month or $50 just once, we're about to sweeten the deal. Become a supporting member or major donor, and a limited number of you will receive a gift worth over $20. And we will never forget our existing supporters. Simply email me via ironradio.org, and I'll send you a free seminar from Dr. Lowry on how to significantly and realistically boost your testosterone levels. Help your iron brothers and sisters who cannot pitch in but deserve better Internet programming in our sports. And happy holidays. Alright,
2: welcome back to Iron Radio, it's Dr. Mike T. Nelson here with Dr. Lonnie Lowry and our guest this week is Adam Glass. And we were just uh, started to get into some grip training and Adam was telling us about how he just did a back lever off of a pinch grip, so do you want to kind of explain what that is for people that may not be familiar with both of those
3: moves, much less put together? Absolutely. You know, so, uh, in gymnastics, it, I think one of the, just some of the most impressive demonstrations is where the gymnast will fix their body parallel to the floor hanging from a bar and they may do that belly up. So their body looks like a plank with arms grabbing the bar. We call that a front lever or they may turn themselves belly down. We call that a back lever. Um, and, and I will tell you this, I remember the first time I ever tried either of those, And and I was, you know, I was gym strong. I could go squat 385 for 20 reps. Man, I grabbed that bar to get in that lever and I didn't go anywhere. (laughs) It's it's (laughs) just incredible. It's a different kind of challenge. And I had a bar built by a man named Ryan Pitts who lives in Iowa. He uh, operates a company called StrongerGrip.com. The bar has metal 2 by 4 blocks that slide across on it. Now, originally, I had that bar built to serve me for deadlifting off the floor and rows and that sort of thing. Um, But I started to really think, like, man, you know, I've only seen a couple people ever do a pull-up from that, and I started working it. And my first pinch pull-up happened in 2010, towards the end of the year. And then by 2011, I was getting triples, and my body weight's gone up and down over the years, guys. I've competed as heavy as 230 – 235 and then as light as um, 210 and then I brought my body weight down to 185 so I'm I'm like I'm like 205 right now I'm always moving it around Um, but the the interesting thing is that with these levers I'm finding that it's been it's added to my pressing strength and my shoulder strength tremendously having to bring the hands in Mm. so you can you can do like and this is an experiment for anyone listening you go do a hanging knee race where you grab a pull-up bar and just bring your knees up as high as you can. Now, go put on a set of, like, fat grip, something where you're actually going to have to squeeze that bar. And what you'll find is that you're going to have much, much more of all of your body working at that time. Well, the harder the grip challenge, the more of that you get. So I found um, an incredible amount of progress in my upper body training over the years training grip. And, uh, I, my, you know, Mike, you've seen some of the goofy kettlebell oh, yeah. presses. And, like, there was, a t- there was a time, guys, that weighing right at, right at 215, I had a 150-pound kettlebell. And I could clean and one-arm press that. And it's strictly clean and one-arm press, mm. not bending all over the place or push-pressing my legs. That was grip. That was not shoulder. I don't have, um, you know, like the biggest arms or shoulders that you'd expect. But the hand strength, it just allows you to do things. And for the call, I was thinking there are really three areas of grip strength, guys, that people think about, and I want to talk about the one that a lot of people that are listening love. It's probably closing grippers. I think closing grippers is what a lot of people, when they see grip training, they think, "Oh, well, cool! I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna get on that." And the reality is, is closing grippers will give people a huge benefit in their total strength. But I'm more interested in what it will do for people to help them rehabilitate. Uh, elbow pain because there are a lot of people who have had great success rehabilitating elbow and forearm pains uh, by adding in some grip training that were previously sidelined and you've had some success with that
2: yeah i've done that in the past actually when i reached out to you and did some grip training because at the time my grip was horrible <laughs> um I mean I remember I had switched to deadlifting, you know mixed grip pretty much all the time and the, I think you had me test just double overhand you know compared to what I was doing mixed grip you know mixed grip was around 400 I think double overhand I don't even think I got above 200 or 185 or something it was pretty miserable you know and what I found over time was that as I was able to get that up, you know, and eh, recently it's probably like three, yeah, 365 or something on a good day. So nothing huge, but big difference from where it was, doing some axle work, that kind of stuff, is that it just transfers to everything else and you feel a lot more secure. So one of the things that experiment people can do if they haven't done much for grip is, you know, get a pair of fat grips or use like a two-inch axle or something like that, something where your grip is going to be more limiting, and it is the weirdest thing to try to deadlift a weight that you normally can do pretty easily for rep, okay. and the fact that you can't hold on to it with your hand, mm-hmm. it literally makes your whole body go weak. And it is the it, first time that happened to me. It was the weirdest thing, and that's when it finally clicked that oh, and it sounds simple, right? If I can't hold on to it, I'm not going to lift it. But the the neurologic sensation right. of it—you you can't move. <laughs> Hey, Mike, let me follow up on that because, yeah, that was
0: my question then because a lot of listeners are familiar with the whole uh, mouthpiece thing. You know, there's some very interesting data that if you clench down really intensely, it sort of activates your whole nervous system and you're much stronger. Uh, Is that the same thing? I know Fortress used to say he would, you know, step one, squeeze the bar like hell, you know, step two, initiate the lift kind of thing, you know, and so do you think there's that direct neurological uh connection almost like with the jaw
2: thing yeah i think it's as simple as you know your body is survival based right so if you're trying to lift something and if you don't have the grip strength you don't have that connection with whatever it is to map it literally as part of your body right you know if i poke you with a pen i can i get that sensation from the pen transferred up You know, people duck in their car when they drive under a low-hanging garage because you sort of map the proprioception of the car to your body. So I think there's some part of your brain, we know the homunculus and all that part is dedicated to hands, that if you don't feel secure holding on to something, it just doesn't allow, I think, some of the programming, in essence, to be executed. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a difference between trying to hold on to something tight versus having the strength to actually hold on to a heavier load. Interesting. And I yeah. think in lifting those things too get flip flopped all the time. Yeah. So I've had better luck with increasing my grip strength than doing some stuff Adam suggested, more so than just trying to hold on really tight to everything. Because mm-hmm. you can hold on really tight to something and just not have the strength to do it. And I think there's a difference. Mm-hmm.
3: There's something know, I want to that. share too that I think is so fun to share is that this is something you might not know, Dr. Lowry. So between the period of two thousand ten and two thousand thirteen, Dr. Nelson has competed in over twenty-five sanctioned grip contests over a three year period, making him actually one of the most contested grip athletes that I've ever met. Oh wow. <laughs> I
0: didn't know there was so was many. Sure.
3: Mike Mike <laughs> never hesitates to, to show up challenge. <laughs> Cool, hey, but And Mike, tell me this, but during that period though, because we, we looked at this, Mike, you were showing up for a contest almost every month, and, and guys, it looked like this, Mike lived about 30 minutes away, and I'd say, hey man, you want to come over and hang out for a contest? And he'd say, sure. sure. And he'd just come out <laughs> and lift whatever we were going to lift. But tell me something, Mike, were your numbers just the same month after month showing up, or did something else happen?
2: Yeah, I went back and looked, and there was only one at the end where I did not improve on something. And most of the time I improved on a majority of the events. And nothing huge, you know, but most of the time in a competition type thing I did better than even a couple months before, you know. So it was very slow but very, very steady progress the entire time. Do you attribute that to a specific grip training
0: or just the competitions themselves?
2: Um. So I actually did some training, but... Like Adam was saying, it's it wasn't that much. I mean I did my normal training and I'd add a few specific things that Adam would show at the end of you know, most sessions. You know, some pretty high frequency, not super high volume per se. Um so yeah, I did train for it, but it wasn't like I switched all my training and dedicated only to grip stuff. I just gotcha. started adding in a few things here and there, you know. One or two things, you know, each
3: time I lifted usually. Mm-hmm. So so I really wanted you to say that, and that reason for that is because my training sounds like you have to completely change every part of your life yeah. up to it. See, but it's not so. It's it's that it's that I'm just working on a high degree of competency in so many different grips. Grips a goofy thing because there's so many ways you could contest it. You know what I mean? Like for example, most guys who say they're a good deadlifter, I would make the argument: No, you're not. You're a good deadlifter with a powerlifting bar. But if we start changing the implement, are you still strong? If I make it a stack of plates, can you pick it up? If I turn the plates over to where now it's kind of like a stone, what if we just get crazy and go get a stone? What if we go get an inch dumbbell where the challenge is pick it up but the handle's bigger than a Red Bull can? Yeah. What if the challenge is pinch these pl- So the thing is this and, – and, and this isn't to hurt anybody's feelings. It's that the amount of strength you have for most folks, they've set it up on the equipment. And I I just want them to open their eyes to what if you looked at your body instead of the equipment? You know what I mean? Like that's more of just what kind of strongman training does is it's not just you know, can I can I bench press this on a barbell? Well, what else can you press? Yeah. And yeah. of course for yourself. Don't be the guy who tries to bench press a stone in your garage alone or something stupid. <laughs> but but you know what I mean? There's there's these incredible challenges and, and that's what I love about the the world of grip is that for the bodybuilder if they're competitive they may see some neat stuff going on but they might be limited in what actually makes sense for their contest you know what i mean um for someone whose interest in fitness is only set up in in a, in a direction of aesthetics there's a bunch of things that they might be missing and in these little things here like mike's talking about things you can plug in at the end of a workout can make a tremendous difference in your results
0: In general fitness, Um, I
3: I imagine, you know,
0: we had an episode, oh, many moons ago about um, variety versus specificity, you know, specificity is a very sound training principle, but you're sort of talking about the downside of that, you know, if all, if you become so good at gripping Uh, this little, this thin little deadlift bar, but from a general fitness and strength perspective,
3: if you can't pick up a big rock, how strong are you really? And let's know. make it practical. Lonnie's having a barbecue. He asks us to come over and help him out. And the grill is in the back of the garage, but it's trailer hitch. His trailer's there with his jet skis. And then there's, you know what I mean? And it becomes a game of, hey, can you help me get this grill out of here? Well, you know what I know is I know I've had a lot of friends that, I mean, man, in the gym, they're quite impressive. But when I need help moving something, they're damn near <laughs> useless. And, and it's a crazy thing to me to be like, dude, how can you squat 350 pounds, but you can't help me move this right now? Right on. Right? Yep. You know, and, and I, think, I think a lot of that is, is is if we just change what they think they're supposed to do, the whole thing comes along. It's not that what they're doing is wrong. It's, hey, let's add in a little bit of this.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. And like I said, there's nothing taken from people who are extreme specialists. I mean, I, in a way, those people fascinate me. You know, yeah. uh, like a dragster fascinates me. you know it's it, is will it go for very long? Nope. you know, can you do <laughs> drive it in circles? Nope, you know, but what it does, it does very, very well. And so yeah. I like I like the specificity uh, part of things too, but it does make sense, right? You're gonna become good at the challenge at the stressor that you apply. And there's just such this myriad variety of stressors or challenges that you could apply. And people don't because they get in that sort of rut, you know, like this is this is just what I do. And I love the idea the the suggestion about adding something at the end of your workout. That's a perfect time to do that. Right. For general, uh, broad based strength, Uh, because, you know, you're sort of done with your bread and butter lifts. Uh, If you're not going to do conditioning work, this sounds like a brilliant thing that you could be adding to the ends of your workouts.
2: You know, if it. If it fails, it's usually a pretty catastrophic failure, too. Right? You don't really see them kind of tootle off the end of the track. You see huge flames and stuff blowing up. And <laughs> no, true. <laughs> and it yeah, crashes, yeah. too. <laughs> you know, what
3: I was going to say is uh, for, for a lot of folks, too, is that for the people who want specifically you know, those better aesthetics, uh, what I will say is, too, is you know for a lot of guys, the way you guys are doing your arm training, it leaves a lot of things out. There are more articulations uh, from your elbow down that can happen that, that I just know you're not training for. And there is a, there is a, a, a tissue reward that's going to come about for that. And we see that in some of these older bodybuilders that they were guys that they weren't just into lifting bars, but they were bending steel bars and they were great at hand balancing, you know, and, and there was a greater degree of tissue there. And I think about how many guys they really want that look. But and shown it. No, you have to go beyond the easy the, the easy bar curl in this preacher bench. Like, hey, that's great, but let's give you more. And that's just another fantastic way. In uh, that one, that's what a lot of people wonder. So, what should I do there? Without needing any extra equipment, go go grab two of the thick gym towels. All right, kind of thread them together. It's like a big thick rope, and just tie that around a heavy dumbbell and do a hammer curl with that thick rope. Step one. Do, you know, I mean, step two, do some pull ups and hanging leg raises from that. But give your hands and fingers something to do, and you'll see a reward from that. Yeah. Especially yeah. when there's a material where your fingers can really flex individually and get in on multiple degrees of articulation. Very, very different effect than grabbing a, you know, like a cylinder where there's not actually much finger pressure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that starts to get into just some more. Uh, like in the topic of arm wrestling, you'll hear guys talk about their finger pressure training, and that's the ability to specifically put pressure into the end, the fingers into the person's hand. Well, that pressure, when somebody gets good at that, it's it's so different than just squeezing a grip. It gets in that specificity, like you're saying. And there are a bunch of these little things that I think, man, when you improve somebody's hand strength ten, fifteen percent in that attribute or this attribute, it results in an enormous improvement. In everything else they do. Uh, a quick one I'll throw out for you there, because Lonnie, you're talking about uh, you know the anatomy part of it. So you look at your hand, guys. Okay, the muscle and, and tissue development in the thumb. Mound, that area can be developed to get quite thick. If somebody doesn't ever have to move their thumb, right, that position reposition, that tissue development's not going to happen. Well, that's going to cost you on all of your pressing and pulling when you see guys who have big thick hands they can sustain more pressure they just have more mechanical leverage so how many of us out there don't have 11 inch wrist how many of us out there don't have massive bone structure to back up things this type of training over time gives you that leverage
0: yeah that was actually going to be one of my follow-up questions is how important is the bone structure is a very large hand i mean i heard many times that like one of the amazing unique things about Eddie Cohn is that he's not a very tall or you know big person in that way but he had very large hands and so my hands are pretty small actually so um especially when we mentioned strongman you hear oh that's a big man sport and that sort of thing what are your thoughts about that how critical is hand size to the amount of grip strength and pressure you can apply or the leverage that you have you
3: know your thoughts on that that's a great question and that's a question a lot of people wonder I will tell you what I've directly seen and what I've learned I was uh, invited to compete as a professional in 2013 to the classic for the Mighty Mits contest Sorenix brought out some of the best grip competitors from around the world and some of those guys they brought out they weren't the best grip competitor they were they were strong men like Mark Phillips lifted in the event um, man we get some big guys come out and, but and the things you too, see, yes, yeah. you, you see all those huge guys and they have, of course, big, huge, strong hands. And of course they can lift some big weights. Um, the bigger, the bigger, the man, the, the more mechanical leverage they're going to have. So, you know, Brian Shaw could break any record he wanted to, if he wanted to, like, I can't think of, I can't think of one grip record that Brian Shaw couldn't come out and break mm-hmm. right now, if it involves, you know, a bar or something. Right. Um he's probably one of the biggest guys ever. Uh when you look at the guys that are great. So Derniat and myself outlift most big, big, big guys quite a bit, but we're still considered bigger guys in the sport at the two twenty range. Mm-hmm. You look at guy like John Brookfield, John's hands would be almost an inch shorter than mine, but John has done things that very few people have ever done. Dennis, very, very small hands, incredible hand strength. Um I've met some guys that had actually huge hands that weren't really above um, average, but that's a training defect. So at the end of the day, I'd say this. If we if we took the question of hands out and I just said, okay, look, I've got one guy here, and he's 5'6", and he weighs 130 pounds. I've got another guy here, and he's 5'10", he weighs 180. I've got another guy here who's 6'4", and he weighs 270. Who's the stronger guy? The 260 guy. Of right. course – with no other information, so so yes, bigger hands are going to allow a, a greater absolute. But the, the important part about that is that we're all born of hands and that's all we got. And what I will tell you is this. No matter how big or small your hands are today, I do know that through correct training, uh, you will see an incredible improvement in your hand strength. You will see... Um, you will see the ability to greatly surpass what most people would consider to be your limit. So, I mean, I think, so one of my friends, David Whitley, Whitley's hands are probably a full inch shorter than mine and Dave's he's within three months of picking up the inch dumbbell nice. and that would, you know what I mean? And that's, and, and you know, for the most, the majority of the history of the bell that was called the unliftable bell. Mm-hmm. And the reality is this is I don't know if Thomas was a fraud or not, but I know that I'm not. I can lift that bell any day you want it. So people can build up to that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, we'll see him do that. So I would the bigger limit in terms of how far somebody actually can go is probably injury, like tendon injuries. A tendon injury will will impact this and slow it down quite a bit. Uh, if you've broken fingers before and they weren't set right, that's going to slow this down quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, broken wrist, that's going to slow this down quite a bit. But for a lot of those people, those are the very first people I would want to train. Now, one of the things that I would have people do, and actually this will be the last little grip thing I'll throw out you guys because it's so useful. Finger walking. Finger walking is one of my favorite ways to train the hands because it develops – uh, dexterity in the fingers. That's one of the things people probably wonder is will grip training make my hands um, um, like clumsy? No, they won't. <laughs> now, here's the deal. If you, and in fact, I do have evidence of this. Ron Hecker is a surgeon in Texarkana. He's been doing grip training since he met me five years ago. I haven't heard him say that he's killed anybody because he can squeeze a little bit harder, right? <laughs> right. But, um, yeah. but in that way, so take a sledgehammer. Have it where the handle is vertical and the weight is on the ground. Grab right at the top, you're going to have a thumbs down grip, the American grip, right? And you're going to start moving your fingers and thumb to walk the handle. There's a video on my Instagram. I've got a couple of these that I put up in the last couple of days that I'll share on my page for people to see that, or just I'll shoot something up for YouTube. But finger walking is fantastic, guys, because it allows you maximum articulation of the hand bones. In um, torsion, which most things in a weight room never move the hand in torsion. Like most people who hear me say that are scratching their head like, what the hell is he talking about? But your hand can move in a torsion. And that's one of the things that does that. So adding in those kinds of things that are very, very different from normal training will produce an incredible difference in someone's results and, and rapidly. Cool. No, very yeah, cool. Nice
2: that too is that it's different, so you're not really – arguing about competing resources in the body it doesn't take long and you know the loads for that kind of stuff are relatively light you know so it's not like you're asking someone to add you know eight sets of eight of their deadlift to their program you know the the volume is relatively small so it's easy to add on for a pretty high benefit
0: yeah it makes sense yeah like like we were saying a end of the workout kind of thing or uh Uh, like Adam was saying when he was deployed and whatnot, you don't have to set aside two hours of your of your schedule to do this. You could you could do this pretty uh, pragmatically. You would think you know throughout the day. So,
3: I remember in um, data that was shared by Peter Cisco and John Little in their works, uh, power factor training and static contraction training, and they cited work that Mike Metzger did in the eighties. And one of the things they talked about was that was that you know there were people that would go out and do one set, and and they would see evidence that the person is still recovering two weeks later. And the particular things that they were using those was like a spring a spring resistance reverse curl, heavily loading the forearm flexors, that kind of thing. And I, I tie that in for folks because most people probably only need a very infrequent dose. I would imagine, because of the nature of how our hands get better, it doesn't have to be training every single day. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if it has to be every week to see progress. I know guys like Jed Johnson will tell you some of the best progress you make in steel bending is one bar every two weeks. Wow. Yeah, I mean, and and I would compare that line. That'd be like walking out and hitting your max squat once every two weeks, and that's it. There are guys who've won, uh, you know, first place in their show hitting max lifts very frequently and that was a training it's probably not the best way to go but it's a way that it could go right
0: yeah the flexibility of it is very it makes me feel actually guilty because my grip is not that great (laughs) i've got forearm um you have an elbow repair issues yeah um i've got past broken fingers i've got all the things you said make it hard probably but also the kinds of things that it'd be fun to to work on because my progress could, would probably be pretty decent, you know, cause I'm, I'm starting so badly,
3: <laughs> you know, I'll tell you that the relief and elbow and wrist pain is what I'm most interested in, in helping other people get because, um, I, what I do know is this is when your elbow flares up, you could throw your upper body workouts in a garbage can. Oh, yeah. So if, if I could help anybody out there get any degree of relief in their elbows or the wrist through this training, that'd be phenomenal.
0: Yeah, I love the translation thing, whether it's nervous system connection to the whole body or, uh, injury prevention up the chain, you know, sort of of articulations and muscles. Uh, I think it goes a lot f- deeper maybe or further uh, reaching than a-, a lot of, uh, bodybuilders or strength athletes might think about, you know, so.
2: You start keeping little sledgehammers in your office there, Lonnie. You can use them to scare students in between or something and do your little finger walking exercises. There you go. <laughs> I probably should do something
0: like that. Cool stuff. Well, thanks for joining cool. us, Adam.
2: Yeah, thank you very much, Adam. I greatly appreciate it. That was very useful. Good stuff. I appreciate being on the sheriff, y'all. Yeah, where can people find out more about
3: you? Uh, you know, guys, if you guys want to um, connect or if you ever want to chat, send me an email, adamglass 0 at gmail.com. Um, I, uh, I have, you know, I got a couple of sites right now, but none of them are very well maintained as I think about it. So I'm not even worried about that. I would say shoot me an email. Just just say hi. Let's Say hi. You don't got to cyber stalk me. Just come say hi, <laughs> and I'll help you out.
0: Good stuff. Okay, everybody. Well, we are in that holiday lull, you know, between Christmas and New Year's, so um, we'll leave you with that. Some stuff to listen to on your break, and I guess we'll see you next time.
2: Cool. See you, guys. Thank you, guys.
0: Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store, one for Phil, one for fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. so you can go into our halls of iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. if you want something about injury prevention. Uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each Hall of Iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. uh, Knee sleeves. Wraps of some kind. Things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you you see you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So... Thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members so for four dollars a month which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community the iron radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only if you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program it's important to check with your physician Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.